This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I got to tell you, um, as you did today, last night, but that into today, have heard all kinds of analysis, all kinds of commentary, all kinds of people saying what happened last night because people were shocked that Donald Trump won. Everybody was shocked, frankly, I think, that Donald Trump won. And I'll tell you, the most common thing that I've heard and seen is that this is an uprising of hate and sexism and racism and protectionism and all kinds of isms. But basically, that Donald Trump rose got got a, what was it? What did he get? A hundred million? No, sorry, whatever it was, million votes he got fifty something million votes entirely on the back of hatred. And that's a commonly held view. You would hear a lot of people say that. You may feel that yourself. Donald Trump is a carrier of hate. He brought hate into this, and all these Americans were filled with hate and voted for him. 50 million haters cast their ballots for Donald Trump. Well, you know, there again, there are going to be those of you who who really believe that, who believe absolutely that this was an election carried on the back of hatred, racism, sexism, all the rest of those things. I disagree. Now, I am not saying that there are not some elements who voted who may have felt that way. Any more than I'm saying there are some elements who voted for the Democrats last time in the Black Panther movement or whatever else who carry hatred towards other people. Hatred can be found on both sides of the aisle. Let's not fool ourselves here. So whatever the reason is, but it's, there was a lot more and no one's talking about this today. This is the part that I don't understand. And I'm still shocked that the pollsters and the pundits and the analysts, if you read, if you just sit down and do some reading and some studying of this, it's not really all that difficult to understand what happened yesterday. Shocking, surprising, perhaps but really not that difficult to understand. And here is, honestly, this is the truth. This is the story that seems to be overlooked in most places today. If you look at a map, and you can go online and find it, go online and type in 2016 or electoral map counties. You don't want the state map. You know, you saw the state maps on the TV last night and they were either red or they were blue, but they were big chunks. What you want is to find the county's map for the whole country where each county, because look, if you, if you, if it's a a state that was, that went Democrat, the whole state shows up blue, but it wasn't all necessarily blue counties, vice versa as well. There could be a state that went Republican. There could be a lot of blue in there, but it went red. So. Go to the county's map, and what you will see, if you look at the entirety of the United States county's map, 2016 electoral map counties, you will see the entire country is red, is Republican, except for major cities. There's a blue dot here. 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 So what does this mean? Suggest Well, this is telling us something that is being heavily overlooked, and that is that for years and years and years, 
the chattering classes, the academics, the protected classes, the political classes, the media classes have lived in their own ivory tower glass bubble that projects the fact that everyone outside those areas, everyone who doesn't attend their cocktail parties, doesn't live in their neighborhood, doesn't dine at their restaurants, is a rube. Those people out in the country are a bunch of hillbilly, sister-marrying, backwater idiots. That's, that's, don't think it's not true. That is exactly what it is. The cities. All the, atten- all the efforts when it comes to rebuilding the economy, where does that money go? To the cities. Where we put the money into the education? In the cities. We put money into infrastructure? In the cities. So now you look around. There's a lot of places, though, in the United States that aren't cities. They are rural areas where people are living, where they have seen their businesses, their industries, their factories, all shut down. Yes, it's because the world has changed. There's no question. We can't go back to 1950. But they've seen all their factories shut down. They've seen their world change. They've seen their prospects diminish. They've seen that they have no opportunities. And yet they see that all the recovery efforts are made for the cities. And we talk in the city, in the context of cities, we talk about the fact that poverty is a crisis. We talked about this with Roy Green last night before we went to Charles Adler. In the cities, poverty is a crisis. We don't want to have impoverished people in the city. That's a horrible thing. But look outside the city limits and do we really care that anybody who's living out in the country is impoverished? Clearly not, because at least that's the perception that the efforts to fix things and to give people opportunities are for those in the urban areas. And yet look at that county map, look at that entirety of the United States with the county maps. And there's a lot of people who don't live in cities who have felt left out of the process. They can vote but they don't get anything for it. They can vote, but nobody listens to them. And so what happened yesterday was that Donald Trump resonated with them. It didn't have to be Donald Trump. I don't believe that too many of them loved the idea of Donald Trump. Donald Trump was merely the vehicle who said, I actually hear you out there beyond the city limits. Those of you on a farm, those of you who are living in towns in Pennsylvania, remember in the debates he talked about it in Pennsylvania and Ohio, in the Rust Belt, where your factories are gone and where you're living in poverty now, I hear you. And he resonated with them. And here is where two things were said that I, I fully believe changed the election. There were two things that were said. The first was a line by Hillary Clinton. When Hillary Clinton referred in that speech to Donald Trump's supporters as being a basket of deplorables, it wasn't just insulting a bunch of voters. She was direct, all the people who have had to pay taxes, vote for people and get people they don't want, get programs they don't want and get no help with their problems. Not only are they now struggling and suffering, but the people like Hillary Clinton, who are supposedly a public servant and yes, yet is worth a quarter of a billion dollars living the high life, 
They are now not just not paying attention to me, they are mocking me. I am not worth their time. I am deplorable because I actually am suffering and I look at Donald Trump as someone listening to me and I think maybe I want to go that direction. I am absolutely positive that that line had a massive impact on the election because it may not have turned those people into Donald Trump supporters, but it absolutely infuriated people and motivated them to go out and vote. They may not have been Donald Trump supporters, but they were definitely not going to be voting for Hillary Clinton and they were going to make a point of making their voice heard. That's the first one. The second one, the second line that I believe had a huge impact in this, and it goes back to the exact same people, was in the second or third, I can't remember which one, debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I can't remember the exact wording, but it was, she was talking about her experience, all the decades that she had in public service. And Donald Trump said, you've had 30 years. Why have you not done any of the things that you're talking about now fixing? And I really believe that when people, again, who had been called deplorables heard that and said, wait a second, yeah, if she gets in, our lot in life is going to stay exactly the same. Nothing is going to change. So what has been entirely missed in the whole follow-up today and the whole discussion today by most people is, this is not about sexism or racism. Many people were bothered, maybe more than bothered, offended, truly offended by things that Donald Trump said. And rightly so. Absolutely rightly so. But you cannot overlook the fact that there are millions, clearly millions, tens of millions of people in the States who for years have been ignored, mocked, put down. Their taxes are fine. Let's take their taxes. We'll take their votes. We'll take their support to get us back in office and live the good life in politics. And then forget about them. Let them go out and rot in the countryside. And this time, they decided, no, we're going to vote. We're actually going to vote. We are going to do something. And you want to know something? This is no different than five or six years ago. Remember Occupy Wall Street? When all the people on the other side, the left-hand side of the political equation, went after the man. They decided we're going to stick it to the man. Occupy Wall Street. We're going to get the man, the guy, the corporations. And a lot of people who were on the left-hand side of the political spectrum said, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, of course, corporations are evil. They take our money. They do whatever. This is the exact same thing. This is the rural, out-of-the-city part of the United States who stuck it to the man. That is what this whole thing is about. It's not about hate I mean, of course, as I say, there is some element in some corners of that, but that's not the driving force behind this. The The things that Donald Trump said didn't drive the vote. The voters tolerated those things because they didn't have another option. Hillary Clinton was never going to be the option for the people out in the country. They, Hillary Clinton was never going to be the option for these suffering people, struggling people who have no prospects in life who are out in the rural areas. The only one who was listening to them was Donald Trump, and they rose up and they decided they were going to do something about it. And what's truly amazing to me is that today, as the, as the people who are going on social media, who by and large, from what I can tell, Maybe it's just the social media people that I'm connected with, but it seems like the majority. Most of the people on social media 
are shocked and outraged and appalled and once again calling Donald Trump's voters rubes and idiots and backwater haters and racists and all these other names, not understanding that that is exactly, exactly what drove those voters to Donald Trump and what drove Donald Trump to the White House by constantly putting people down, patronizing them, pretending that they don't matter, not even pretending, by establishing that they don't matter, and that the only people that matter in the United States are people who live in the cities, in the academic halls, in the high, um, you know, the, the, the industry, in these places where there's big salaries, in the walls of politics, these are the only people that matter. And eventually, the other people decided that, that that's enough. That's enough. And so we're seeing all the people today who are following this up on social media by uh, uh, insulting the people who voted for Donald Trump for the reasons that they are doing it, falling into the exact same trap or making the exact same mistakes that Hillary Clinton and the people on her side that lost this made themselves. We are just going to diminish and insult a huge swath of the American population and pretend they don't exist. We're happy to take your vote. We're happy to take your taxes. But come on, then go away. We'll, we'll, We'll live in our ivory towers. That's, that is what won Donald Trump the White House. Don't, here's the thing. If you were listening to the news before we came in tonight, Rachel Notley, you know, the premier of Alberta said, oh no, this is, this is Donald Trump won because America is sexist and not ready for a female, a female president. Not even remotely close. If Hillary Clinton had been a decent candidate, she would have won this easily. Can you, she was running against Donald Trump. She was running against Donald Trump. The only reason that Hillary Clinton lost is because she ignored at her own peril a whole lot of the American population. And she did some other things as well that showed herself to not exactly be an ideal candidate, which makes you wonder how thoroughly, honestly, how thoroughly must Hillary Clinton be loathed by the American people? that she could lose an election to Donald Trump. It does make you wonder. I mean, I really believe she's the only person in the States who could have lost to Donald Trump. It is, it is, if you, if you are constantly going to put a particular people group down, sometimes once in a while, they are going to have their own say. And they did that. Karen has jumped into the line. Karen, how are you this evening? Hi, good, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm okay, thanks. What, what do you think about uh, what happened last night? I actually predicted it before the election. I thought that Trump would win. Why? And the reason I thought he would win was because I think the U.S. Um, populace wanted to vote against the establishment. Agreed. Um, no, agreed. And, and, why, and why do you think they wanted to vote against the establishment? I just think they were sick of what was going on, to be honest. And Hillary Clinton... It's just maybe a mimic of um, her, previous, her her husband, Bill Clinton, and they wanted to get somebody new in there to fight the establishment. They're all, you know, everybody's in each other's pocket. 
It's, you know, if, if you read the WikiLeaks stuff that was coming out, not everybody did, but boy, it, it sure looks like you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it, when you read some of that stuff, you know, when Donald Trump, and I'm not defending or, or supporting Donald Trump, I'm just saying when Donald Trump said that the system is rigged, and a lot of people laughed at him. You know who wasn't laughing at him? All the Bernie Sanders supporters, because the WikiLeaks documents showed that the Democratic process, on the, I mean, the Democratic Party process, was entirely rigged for Hillary Clinton. Oh, definitely. I and, mean, they got Bernie Sanders out, right? And, and if you, again, you read the WikiLeaks, it's not, it's very clear what happened. This was not a lowercase d Democratic fight. This was a coronation, and he just happened to be in the way, and they got him out of the way. Absolutely. Karen, appreciate so the call. Not, I was not surprised at all, to be honest. I, I predicted it a long time ago. Well, I hope you put some money down on Vegas then. Uh, I wish I did. <laughs> Karen, thanks for the call. Thank you. Uh, it, you know, it's um, it, it was. It was a slap against the establishment. And you can go on and you can say to yourself, well, this is all about hate. This is, uh, and the other one today that I heard, as we've heard forever, was that, oh, this is now the rise of the new Hitler. Give me a break. Come on. You you can do better than that intellectually than to say that Donald Trump is the rise of the new Hitler. Donald Trump, and we've gone over this before, I'm not going to go over it again, is not the rise of the new Hitler. You are insulting everybody who lived through the war. You are insulting every Jew, and you're insulting everyone with a shred of intelligence if you try to push that one. That is a, a load of garbage. You can disagree with Donald Trump, but once upon a time, it was George Bush who had his face drawn up like Hitler on signs. Everyone who you disagree with is Hitler. That, that seems to be our fallback position now. If you disagree with someone, call them a Nazi, call them Hitler, and then I guess you win. But uh, the, you, So you can say that this is all about hate, and there, of course there, was, there were people of course there are people who find their own reasons to vote for someone and some of them are going to decide to vote for him because they hate. Of course. But that's on both sides of the ledger. Are there more on Trump's side? Okay, maybe, possibly, I don't know. But you underestimate you underestimate the anger that people had at what Karen just said, at the establishment, at the elite if you just chalk it up to the fact that people are hating. It's not just that they're hating. There are huge swaths of America that have been abandoned and not just abandoned, but mocked by the people who live in those. You know, when when Lady Gaga and Cher and Miley Cyrus and all of them come out and make jokes about the people who are suffering and then they are performing and hobnobbing with the candidate, it you don't you don't thrill people who are whose lives are really in disrepair right now and what happened donald trump which ironically because donald trump is the last guy who comes across as the man of the people but donald trump was able to tap into that and it didn't matter that it was donald trump it could have been anybody it could have been me it could have been you it could have been bill kelly any of us run for office if we had been able to tap into that donald trump just happened to tap into it and ride that to the white house that's all. No more election tonight. If you want to have any, if you want to have your say on it anymore, Radley at 900 CHML.com would love to hear what you think about it. But 
you know, next time someone tells you that it was all just hatred, Donald Trump is a purveyor of hate and all this, uh, sure, he may be, but it was not hate that drove him into the White House. It was a feeling of hopelessness that was engendered by by years and years and years of politicians and the elite who told the people who live in the rural areas and the and beyond the suburbs that they don't matter. That's what led him to the White House. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. We are coming to you tonight from downtown, well, the outskirts of downtown Hamilton, Longwood and Maine. This is Hamilton, Ontario. We have, over the years, been known as the Ambitious City. Remember that one? That was a name that was strapped to this city for a while. We were the Ambitious City. We have been called, obviously, the Hammer. That's a more current one. We've been Steel Town, Steel City. Well, now, a new idea is being floated that we should rebrand ourselves. I mean, steel is kind of going the way of the dodo, it seems, and we should be rebranding ourselves as Music City. Music City, Hamilton, Music City, Canada. What do we think about that? Well, Tim Potasek is the owner of Sonic Onion. He's also the guy who runs Super Crawl, and I, I don't even know all the things that Tim now does in town. The list is way too long for me to keep track of, and it would take the entire segment if I was to list off all the stuff that he does. But one of the things he also does is he joins us every once in a while on the show, which we're thrilled about, and he's doing that right now. Tim, thanks for doing this tonight. You're welcome. How are you? Uh, listen, I'm great. I'm, 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 I'm wrapping my head around this idea of Hamilton as Music City. If I hear Music City, I think of Nashville. Sure. Is that, is that, could, could, could Hamilton pull off the Music City tag? I think it's a, an element that it certainly can uh, as part of a bigger you know, part of a bigger envelope of things. So the Music City's concept is uh, is sort of sweeping Ontario in a way and a little bit because there's a huge um, momentum push on music uh, as a tourism draw in Ontario. But do we as a city in Hamilton, do we have the, if you're going to call yourself something, here's the thing, it's one thing for someone else to call you something and give you a nickname, but if you're going to call yourself, you better have the chops to do it or else it looks silly. Do we have in this city, do we have the musical chops that we could actually pull it off? I think so. Got a pretty de- pretty deep um, base of music, and Hamilton's always been, um, you know, kind of a, a quiet leader within, tr- within the country as far as, like, producing high-level talent and, per capita, a whole lot of it. There was a piece in the paper today that got me actually onto this topic by Graham Rockingham, the music writer for The Spectator. I want to read just a couple lines from that piece. Um, the, here, this is his words. The economic benefits of a strong music sector became evident. Its estimated super crawl brought some $14 million to the city in 2014. The 2015 Juno Awards had an economic impact of $11.9 million. Five Garth Brooks concerts sold 80,000 tickets for a total gate of $6.4 million and filled hotels and restaurants for four days. A study by Hill Strategies found last year Hamilton had 30 venues, mostly clubs and pubs, offering music at least twice each week, with a total attendance of more than 360,000 people. 
And then it goes on to say, there's little doubt the city's music scene is in a growth spurt. Larry Fuedo, I don't know if I pronounced his name right. I hope I did. President of the Hamilton Musicians Guild says his local membership has doubled to 615 in less than four years. And Tim, I look at all this stuff and I think, when when did all this happen? Has this always been the case for Hamilton music or is this more than just a little growth spurt? Is this actually a big change? Well, I think Hamilton has ebbed and flowed, you know, as far as, music being in the spotlight over the decades. Uh, it's always been there, but we are particularly strong right now. I mean, there's certainly gaps, right? Um, you know, Hamilton, like every city, has its has its needs and gaps and things that we still need to do to, you know, create that vibrancy. But for the for the population base and, and the amount of musicians, like I said, per capita in the city and people that are producing at a very high level, um, it's astonishingly great right now. And I think that that momentum is going to continue and it's going to continue for a couple reasons hamilton again you know we're in this unique position of being you know around the around the curve of the golden horseshoe there and we're close to the u.s and we're close to toronto and we're a very affordable city and you know part of the growth has been musicians artists and people in culture moving into hamilton from places that are less affordable and i don't see that changing and i also see that that it also is a high-level artist, too, so the people that are moving here are usually like mid-career artists. They're established, they've put their chops in, they've toured, they've done, you know, they've released multiple albums, and they're at a point where, not that they're settling down, it's just that they're at a point where they have a comfort level where they want to, you know, have kids, they still tour, they still put records out, but they're more mature, um, and I think you're going to see that uh, happening more and more because um, Hamilton's just in a it's in a really prime location for that um, that type of acquisition, sort of so to speak, to happen. What did you mean when you said though that we have gaps that we have to fill? What what are the gaps? Or give me an example of what you mean by that. Um, I mean, there's 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 certainly gaps. I mean, we need more shows. We need bigger shows. Mm, we need that way. Okay, m- middle sized shows. We need you know people. Um, supporting the smaller venues. I mean, it's a hard go, for sure, if you're in the live music space running a venue in this town. There's some people doing it incredibly well. There's other people that have carved out niches for themselves that are great. Um, but it, uh, it it can be a struggle um, to get people out and, uh, you know, buying tickets where, um, you know, and, and that's simply just a function of, you know, kind of how the city's laid out. We're, in, we're intensifying downtown, but it's, that's got a ways to go, and um, you know it can be kind of comfortable sometimes. Or even if you work downtown, you get home and you pop out to the suburbs, and you're sitting in your house, and it's nice and cozy, warm, and you don't want to <laughs> yeah. go out to a show. You know, like it's so it's a little bit different when than like you know, for example, like a place where I was just this weekend, like Manhattan, where it's like it's ultra dense, and your place where you live generally for ninety nine percent of the people there is puny. And you don't want to stay in it. You want to get out. So you get out and you do things where, where it's, uh, that's a challenge and one of those things we're just going to have to try to overcome in Hamilton. And as we become more, uh, you know, intensified, as we get more density downtown, I think that you'll see the venues in the core start to thrive even more. And on top of that, restaurants and everything else that comes along with it. Do we have the right venues, though? I, I, the reason I ask the question is because... I don't know, it was six months or so ago, I had uh, Jeremy Weiderman from Monster Truck on the show, and they were about to head out on a tour, and I said, oh, when are you guys, I I didn't see Hamilton on your 
list of stops. Now, they ended up playing Festival of Friends, I think it was, as a fill-in, as the last minute. But his comment was, there's really not a venue in this city that fits us. We're not really a bar band anymore, but also we're not going to be filling First Ontario Centre yet. So we really don't have a place in this market to play. Are we Are we missing the Massey Hall type venue or something else where we, that, or, or do we have all those things right now? No, there's certainly a gap. I mean, we have the Massey Hall, we have Hamilton Place, we have, we have the soft seaters. We've got that kind of covered on some level where you can do small soft seaters at a show, uh, staircase and then work your way up to uh, Theater Aquarius. And you've got Lincoln Alexander Center that's in the middle of that. And then from there you've got you know, other soft-seater options up at, uh, you know, at the schools at Mac, at Mohawk, and, and Hamilton Place once you're at that, you know, Blue Rodeo level where you can sell, you know, 2,200 tickets. Um, but where we are missing at a huge gap is, like, we're pretty well covered on the club level, multiple-size club levels, anywhere from, like, 50 to 100 people to 350, 400, but there's a huge club-level gap uh, between that 500 and a thousand cap venue. And it's, uh, you know, it is definitely problematic. Like most of my favorite bands, I have to be honest, play 800 to a thousand cap venues and they don't play Hamilton. So they will miss it. They'll do Toronto, London, or Toronto Kitchener. Cause there's options in those cities. Um, and they'll just drive right past Hamilton. And, uh, it is a little bit disappointing, a little depressing. <laughs> uh, we do do shows. We'll rent like halls and churches and, you know, same with, um, Madeline and Tom with the Lock Street series that they do. They rent the church. That's 550, um, 600, I think, something along those lines. So y- you can do it by renting, but the, it's also challenging as a, you know, promoter when you do do that. If you don't have your own room and you haven't invested in your own space, that means you have to rent PA, you have to rent lights, you have to, you know, uh, do SOPs for bar and liquor sales. You don't have regular bartenders to rely on. So there's all these other obstacles with, like, putting together shows like that. Uh, we're in a good spot because we have a venue, so we can pull staff from that venue. We can pull, um, you know, production if we need to and that sort of stuff. But it, it does become challenging, and that is a, when I say a gap, it's a, it's a massive gap. When you talk, and when we talk about gaps, I'm wondering also, um, there are people listening who would be huge fans of Monster Truck or of a lot of the, uh, bands that you're talking about that fall into that group. There's also people who would be fans of classical music or jazz or whatever. Do we have a, an across the board representation in Hamilton of all the different styles of music or, or do we have one that really stands out and there's huge areas where we're not servicing a particular, market, whether it's, as I say, classical or whatever else, is there, do, do we have all those bases covered? I think so. I mean, you know, we, we do locally, we do okay. Um, we don't have like, you know, promoters that are regularly bringing in, um, like jazz, you know, and when I say regularly, I mean like, you know, like Lou at the St. Hollywood or Marco at Absinthe who are bringing in rock acts three or four sure. days a week or five days a week. I mean, and that's what know, sells there. Pardon me. And that's what sells there. So that's oh, what yeah. they're bringing in. Of course. Yeah, for sure. And that's their thing. That's what they understand. That's what they know. That's what they've built. Uh, and that's fantastic. Um, there are some venues, gas works and the Hefners who are bringing in the jazz and, you know, but it's not like every single weekend. Right. So, um, I mean, I think they're bringing it into sub, 
to meet the need that that might be there, but we're not building uh, in some genres. We're not building on the need. Uh, HPO and and Brat between the two of them, I think they've got a good deal of the classical covered with the children's and the kids orchestras as well. Um, I think we're doing a pretty good job for the size of the city we are. I think we're definitely um, covering those bases. Uh, on the blues side, there's definitely some blues clubs, and there's a pretty strong blues presence in Hamilton, strong rock presence in Hamilton. Um, might be missing a little bit of that electro, um, you know, sort of pop kind of thing that doesn't happen very often in Hamilton, but I don't know if there's anybody in Hamilton that really specializes in that um, on a, on a everyday basis. So yeah, again, you know, there's always little holes, and whenever I'm whenever I'm thinking when I'm discussing gaps or holes, I always think to like the biggest cities of the best markets in you know North America, which is like Toronto, where you can find all that stuff every day a week. Um, New York, you can find that stuff every day of the week, all year long. Chicago, same thing. Boston, same thing. So I mean, and those are much bigger centers, right? So we're definitely by far much smaller than those. Um, in uh, population base, but uh, that's what I would compare to. And that's what I would, you know, thinks we, I think we should strive to be. There is an event tomorrow. You mentioned the Lincoln Alexander Center. That's appropriate because tomorrow there is an event. It's not a, a concert. It's a discussion. It's a forum about a, a panel discussing this very topic of Hamilton as a music city. Um, and a big part of it, as I understand, is all the different people like yourself and others who are involved in the music industry, leveraging the different components that exist to help out. What, what does that mean, Tim? When we look at having all the different pieces to, to help, like to help to what end, what would we ultimately like to see when we get all these different pieces working together? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, on one level, all these types of things, they, breed collaboration so they bring people together and those are good within the community as, as well like to have us all sitting in the same room we're all busy people like anybody is in any particular you know uh, form of work and you don't always sit down with your peers as often as you should so doing something like this is a is a networking event within the city as well for us to all sort of get together and and discuss what one another are doing and how there can be synergies to doing what we do and a lot of the times you don't think about it as much. You get caught in your own little bubble of what you do and you're not thinking about what your friends are doing. You're seeing it, but you're not necessarily thinking about how you could work together. And so in a lot of cases, these types of things bring, you know, they bring the people together and then ideas form out of it. And then you'll see initiatives happen because of it. So I think that's part of the, part of the reason. And uh, the other is that there's some like, you know, some pretty heavy hitting people coming to talk and uh, they have a wealth of knowledge of, other cities that are trying to do this in cities that have done it, so they'll be able to provide a wealth of information to everybody in the room uh, with respect to how to move forward, and that will also spur more ideas and get people thinking about what uh, what it is that we would need to do to uh, to you know call ourselves a music city. Do we want the music industry in the city of Hamilton to become highly lucrative? Is that the idea? Is the ultimate goal that we make it so that everybody makes a ton of money off music? Or is that kind of selling out, and is that antithetical to what is trying to be done here? Uh, well, absolutely, we want to make more money. Um, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think anybody would say they don't want to make more money um, doing what they love to do. So, uh, I mean, that's an element of it, and I don't think there's a selling out perspective at all. I think it's... Um, like you rep- 
you represent a lot of musicians. And I'm wondering, does any musician ever come to you and say, you know what, Tim, um, I don't really want to get a major label or something. I'd rather stay independent and struggle along. Because I'm, I'm sure there is someone out there who says that, you know, for the, for the uh, authenticity, I've got to stay as an independent artist who doesn't really sell out to the man. Does oh, anyone yeah, actually no. say that, though? Oh, yeah. Well, I've been saying it for 20 years. So, um, you know, you can create your own your own independence, right? Um, it's becoming harder and harder these days. I mean, there's definitely avenues. We're working with bigger companies now on some levels where we used to work or do it ourselves with respect to distribution and those types of things. Um, but I, don't, I think that that's the, that kind of terminology is being used less and less these days, and it's sort of more finding you know, your appropriate team and whatever that appropriate team needs to be for a particular artist or a particular label, um, publisher, manager, whatever you're doing, is it's sort of working with that group of people that you need to work with to propel your career to the level where you want it to be or where you're comfortable. So not everybody wants to have the kind of superstardom of whatever, a Drake or, uh, oh. you know, something along those levels. I don't think every musician necessarily strives to be that at that level, and I think that's a good thing, too. So yeah, they, yeah, no, we don't need any more Drake, I'll be honest. No more Drake. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't agree or disagree. With <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're a savvy politician. You're becoming one anyway. Uh, one last thing. In the article today that Graham Rockingham wrote about this, you can find it in The Spectator. You can probably find it online at thespec.com. He said in there, and maybe you know the answer to this, that the band Crowbar wrote the song Oh What a Feeling, which is a very famous song. Everyone knows it. They wrote that in Hamilton. Is that true? I think it's true. Graham would know better than me. Yeah, I just, I'd never heard that before. And I was like, wow, I had no idea that they wrote that song here in Hamilton. So anyway, listen, that's, that's, a, that's a cool one. That's, that's a little piece of trivia that, uh, that we'll keep an ear out for. Hey, uh, Tim Potisic, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Have you seen the photos of the new Toblerone bars? You know what a Toblerone bar looks like, right? I'm assuming everyone out there has, can picture it's those, it's the triangles and there's the chunks in a triangle shape with the little flat part in between where you're allowed, you're able to snap the pieces apart so you can, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know what a Toblerone bar looks like? Well, if you haven't seen the new Toblerone bars, go find one. You can see the pictures online because in a cost saving measure, the Toblerone company decided they didn't want to shorten the bar to spend, to use less ingredients. They see, they didn't want to reduce the price or sorry, they didn't want to raise the price and they didn't want to shorten the bar to make it look smaller. So what they've done is they've skinnied the height of the mountains. So now the gaps, the valleys between the Toblerone triangle mountains are much, much longer and wider. So the mountains look like they've gone on a severe diet. They, they look like emaciated Toblerone mountains. I, again, I, I'm assuming that everyone knows what a Toblerone bar is so they can understand what I'm talking about. Well, this has caused some measure of upset among Toblerone consumers. I think the only time I actually ever get a Toblerone bar is at Christmas sometimes, and I really don't know why Christmas has become the Toblerone time. I think you can probably, I mean, I'm sure you can get them any other time, but Toblerone eaters 
are quite upset that their Toblerone bars have been whittled down. And not only are they mad because they're smaller, but they're mad because they say it looks weird. And it kind of does look weird. After you're used to what Toblerone has been, you could kind of drive a truck through the mountains right now in these bars. They're, they're pretty skinny. But this got me thinking that Toblerone is far from the only product that you sometimes don't notice is being reduced. And I said off the top of this hour that how many times have you gone to open a bag of chips and the bag of chips, it's a nice big bag of chips. Now, not the kind, you know, we have the kind like the, the, uh, pretzels that you can see through. I'm not talking about those, I'm talking about the bag, you know, it's not a see-through bag and it's a pretty big bag of chips and you go to open it up. And when you open it, the chips don't even come to the halfway point. Luke, you were chowing on chips when I came in today. And I'm guessing that when you opened it, the chips were not overflowing in the bag. They no. were. It was halfway full when you popped it open. And they have never been overflowing in the bag. But you it, are just misremembering how chips used to be. But they all. They. I again. I must be misremembering. But it seems to me they. They were. There were more in there than there are now. No, because there is a scientific reason why there is so much air in your bag of chips. Now, I'm going to speak for myself here but I feel like most people will agree with me. When I eat a bag of chips, I prefer the chips to be as chip-like as possible rather than, say, chip dust. Chip dust I find not that enticing to eat with my fingers. That's why there's air. The air is a cushion so that your chips stay chip-like. If there was no air, the chips would all be crushed. I stand by my original position that there were meaning, more. That there were more. that there could not have been more. Oh, there could have been more. There's still air in there. Oh, you could please. have a little less air. Yesterday, so so maybe today was a bad example. I was opening up some PC chips today, and yeah, they're about half full, but they've always been half full. It's just I something that comes with eating a bag of PC chips, apparently. But I was eating some Ruffles yesterday, and I opened them up, and it was about three quarters full, which is what I've come to expect. So if you want more than that, then you can have a fine chip dust instead of actual chips. But here is, so as I got looking at this with the Toblerone situation, and with my belief, despite your quasi-scientific <laughs> explanation... My belief that chips have been reduced in quantity in a bag of chips. Nonetheless, I I got thinking, you know, there must be others. Well, you know what? I am apparently far from alone on this. Far from alone on this. There are websites. There are news stories. There's all kinds of stuff of people who are bitter, angry. I mean, you think people are angry about the election? Uh Uh-uh. They are angry about the fact that they go to, uh, to get something at the store and they find out that the amount they are getting is less for the same price. It's everywhere. So I'm reading this this first story. It's from ABC News. They did a big special report, an expose on the reduced amount of stuff you get when you go to the store. I mean, this was, Diane Sawyer was involved, so you know this was, this was big time. I mean, Diane Sawyer is usually only brought in to interview the world's biggest celebrities. But here, she was involved in the whittling of your foodstuffs. And this was a couple of years ago, but they were using examples that boxes of a particular brand of tissues secretly now have 12 fewer tissues in them. I know. Ra- what, raise what the fist. What about those 12 times that I need to blow my nose after the box is over? I- exactly. You. I may you, have to buy a whole nother box or, or maybe I buy a, bo- a pack of three boxes like most people do and I'll just move on to the next well, box. Well, here's the next one. That on average, when you bought a bag of chocolate chips in this particular brand, there were 48 fewer chips 
per bag. Well, that's three or four. That's four or five cookies worth. Um, A particular brand of mixed nuts had 52 fewer nuts than previously. Now, see, we we may have a problem here if the nuts are, are... in that, or uh, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for is, but uh, improperly uh, uh, mixed together. Because if they took out only the cashews, then we're gonna we're gonna have a problem. But if if they took out the same amount of every nut, then then sure. So if we're short on filberts, you're okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All I'm saying is, has anyone ever know- knowingly, intentionally eaten a filbert? I mean, they they come in the mixed stuff, but I don't know that anyone's ever gone to the store and said, "I wonder where they keep the filberts." I, I, I don't, don't even. I couldn't identify a filbert if it bounced off my head. I I will say that when we're on the topic of the things that make you angry that probably shouldn't, mixed nuts is one of them because I love. Uh, Planters does these like uh, mixed nuts where they're all like honey nut or or they're all honey roasted or they're all pralined, and. They're great, except they are 90% peanuts. And I don't know if that's a change thing, but all I'm saying is if you advertise with honey roasted almonds and honey roasted cashews and honey roasted peanuts, I expect some cashews and, and almonds in my mixed nuts. I'm glad you've given this that much thought. <laughs> I, I, want e- I, just... I want equality between the nuts. I want to take every single handful to have a little bit of each because then you truly experience the flavor. Here is one of my favorite ones, though, and this is from a website that monitors this stuff, like really is on top of these things. And this is for the people who are seriously watching for any sign that a company is trying to reduce without reducing prices. One of my favorite, and these are, so there's, and again, I'm not naming the brands just because I don't want to give them free advertising, but there is a package of toilet paper a bag of, uh, 24 rolls of toilet paper. Okay. And if you, the new bag is actually smaller. So if you bought them now, it's, you have less rolls. 418 rolls was the, uh, 418 sheets was the old amount you would get in a bag. Now you get 380. You're down by 38 sheets. However, on the top of the bag, even though you're getting less, it says 20% more. Well, how, how, how is that possible? They're lying to you. They've reduced the number of sheets and they're arguing that you're getting 20% more. Ah, you must look at the very, very small print, like the stuff that if you're over seven, your eyes will not be able to read this stuff. It's 20% more than, not than used to have. It's 20% more than if you buy the competitor's brand of the same size. So it looks like you're getting a deal. They're throwing more of their product. No, they're giving you less. That's that's not uncommon, though. All the laundry detergents are guilty of that. They all say like 20% more on their things, and they all just mean 20% more than a slightly smaller size. But I think most people re- th- look at that, and they think it means 20% more than I used to get. I've got a deal here. I've got a bigger, I've got an I, upsized brand. Here's another I, one. I might be wrong, but I think that's what they're going for. Toothpaste. 33% more now in this brand of toothpaste. Well, 33% more of what? (laughs) Well, it's an 8-ounce, so it used to be an 8.2. used to be an 8.2-ounce tube of toothpaste. They've reduced it to 8 ounces, 
and yet it says 33% more. Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. Mathematically, that's impossible. It can't be a third bigger when they've reduced it by 0.2 of an ounce, except the small, 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 small print says it's 33% more little asterisk, tiny letters versus the six ounce tube. Exactly. That's what I was just talking about. Well, wait a second. Yeah, I know, but wait a second. We're not talking about this tube. This is not the, you're not getting a deal (laughs) on this tube. So anyway, here's the other one. Here's the other ones. And we all have been through this. Cotton in a pill bottle. You buy a bottle of pills of headache pills, aspirin or whatever, and you take off the lid and there is four pounds of cotton rammed in there with seven pills at the bottom of the thing. We've all done that before. And you're like, you buy this thing of pills thinking, oh good, I've got enough headache pills now to last me until the apocalypse. And you open it up and literally you're done by Thursday. Yeah. Similar, similar to that, but, but worse, like a thousand times worse. I, uh, bought a, a bottle of melatonin to help, help me sleep. And it's one of the, I guess the, it's just a big, big bottle, like, uh, any big bottle of Advil or Tylenol or anything. And so I was expecting, you know, it to be close to full. It was less than half full. I don't necessarily care that I paid that much for what I got. I'm just more angry that they put it in that large of a bottle. Here's one. Here's an ad on the side, on a, on a, on a wrapping of a steak. You go to the the supermarket, you want to buy a steak. Our biggest 12 ounce sirloin. Wait a second. Isn't a 12 ounce sirloin? How do you have a bigger than 12 ounce sirloin? How do you have a big 12 ounce and a little 12 ounce? Okay. How can you have our biggest 12 ounce sirloin? Well, I mean, come on, you can't, it's 12 <laughs> no, ounces. It's like saying what weighs more, a bag of water or a bag of rocks? Wait, no, a pound of water or a pound of rocks. I, I should probably do the delivery, right? If I'm going to do it. Um, but here, here's the other one. And I found this really interesting because I always thought Luke, that when you bought a bottle of wine, that that indent in the bottom that they do, I always thought that thought that was for them to cheap out because that's less wine they have to put in the bottle. Here is the one cheap out that is not a cheap out. So if you buy a bottle of wine and you're thinking, oh, they're just not wanting to give me as much wine in the bottle. So they put that indentation at the bottom. There are reasons why that is there very quickly. All the other things they're ripping you off. This one, the indent in the bottle of wine, A, it makes it easier to hold it and pour it if you're doing it properly. If you're a waiter, for, you can put your thumb in there and put your four fingers in the bottle and lean over and pour it. Two, it allows the bottle to stand properly because if it was flat, it might be a little wobbly. Yeah, it wouldn't. you couldn't necessarily guarantee it'd be flat. Here is the big one. Those things, they're called a punt, by the way. Like in football, a punt. Those indents catch the sediment. When the wine settles, the sediment goes down into the sides there and it allows the wine to be separated from the sediment. It makes your wine chill quicker, uh, makes it easier to clean the bottle somehow, and makes the bottle more resistant to high pressure so it doesn't burst. Yes. So there are reasons. That one we get away with. The other stuff, you're being ripped off. Just telling you. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.